I'm going to go back in 1904. Yeah, Fats Wallace showed up in 1904 in New York, but I didn't sing Charles, Missouri. Yeah, Mr. Coleman, Randolph Hawkins showed up. And he was named Coleman. That's the last name. Your name is Coleman, son. Well, because that was his mother's maiden name. Calac Dukes. Uh, mother named him after her maiden name, too. But, uh, you know, what can we say? Uh, that because her uh, maiden name was Kennedy, so he was Edward Kennedy Ellington. And in this case, we got Coleman Randolph, um, you know, and, uh, you know, what can you say? Hawkins. And um, Coleman was his uh, mother's maiden name. Now that we've gotten the whole name thing straight, let's talk about the game that we are playing here. We're talking about one of the most important figures in the development of jazz, but also in the development of the tenor saxophone as an integral part of jazz instrumentation. Um, young uh, Coleman was very smart and uh, had an affinity for music at a very um, early age and uh, it started playing uh, the piano and then the cello. Yeah, a lot of black folks play string instruments. Ray Nance played trumpet and violin and Ellison band. We played in string instruments too. It's, it's natural because the string instruments can get the pitches between those diatonic pitches, you see. We're not limited to just 12 chromatics when you play a string instrument. You can create some quarter tones and stuff if you want to. So we kind of like the string instruments for a different reason than most Europeans do. Um, at any rate, uh, somewhere around the age of nine, um, Coleman discovered the uh, tenor saxophone. And, and that is what is different for him and why he is such a profound influence on all the tenor saxophonists that follow him. You see, most of the people who played saxophone of any form, tenor, alto, C melody, barry, bass, any of them, were first clarinet players. And so when they picked up the saxophone, they played it like a big clarinet. And they were already playing jazz on the clarinet in the same kind of lines that they play on the clarinet they tried to play on the saxophone. That was just a natural transition for most of these early players. But Coleman didn't start with no clarinet. He started with the saxophone. So his lineage is different. And so his technique as he grew as a player, he began to understand that his saxophone could do some things that the clarinet did not do so easily. And he incorporated the saxophonistics into his jazz playing, into his improvisation. And that has made all the difference. Now, he didn't mess around. Uh, he got started real, real early. We know that by 1923, when he would have been 18, 19 years old, he was a member of Mamie Smith, Crazy Blues' first official uh, black recording. He was a member of Mamie Smith's 
uh, jazz house in 1923. We know that. And we know that in that band was also uh, the trumpet player, uh, Bubba Molly, who would become a major influence uh, in Duke Ellington's band, who come out of uh, the legacy of Joe Oliver and Louis Armstrong and all of the earlier New Orleans players. So early on, although he's from Missouri, uh, Hawk or Bean, as he was called. I think they called him Bean because of the shape of his head, and I don't think he liked that too much, so most people called him Hawk, as in Hawkins for short. So we just call him Hawk, okay? We'll leave the Bean for the people who don't like him so much. Um, at some point, uh, he also played the bass saxophone and the baritone saxophone, big old horns, which probably forced him to use a whole lot of air and so as he continued to play and develop on the tenor saxophone, he developed this very big, round, muscular sound on the saxophone. So all the things that he is experiencing as a young musician are going to pay great dividends as he develops into the great professional he became and the influence over all the tenor saxophone players that, that follow him. Um, he did some time after playing with uh, Mamie Smith with Fletcher Henderson. And at the time he was in F Fletcher's band, Louis Armstrong was also in Fletcher's band. So anytime you're listening to anywhere near Louis Armstrong, uh, he, he, he's gonna affect you. So Louis Armstrong's improvisational, improvisational style, improvisational style, influenced Coleman Hawkins. And so he's moving again away from what was traditional for the saxophone into a style for the tenor saxophone that is more idiomatic, idiomatic to the instrument and also more trumpet-like in terms of the lines that he is playing, the ideas that he is playing. Very important, those early influences uh, in his life. Um, he is one of the players who happened to be in the right place at the right time all the time. Now, as he continues to develop and, and as the saxophone became more popular, there were no people for him. It may have been Prince Robinson and people like that who had been playing sax, tenor sax before him, but they were mostly people who made noises on the saxophone. Honks and those rubbery sounds and glissandos like they're playing a big clarinet or something. Uh, it was nothing like what he will grow to be. And what he will grow to be it's going to influence the next group of people, including Lester Young, Shoeberry, John Baez, Ben Webster, all of these guys. So as he is growing and as his style is developing and people are checking out the way he uses harmony, the way he is using arpeggios, the way he is so free with his improvisation, he's getting more and more and more and more and more popular. Somewhere around 1934, uh, he heard the call to go to Europe. He's so famous in the States, and the Europeans were like, we need to hear this man. 
So he leaves us from 1934 to 1939. And he's in Europe touring and playing everywhere and making great recordings, as a matter of fact, um, he made recordings in France with Django Reinhardt uh, in, in, uh, in these years, uh, 37, I think, and uh, so many other, um, oh yeah, Benny Carter had also left and gone to Europe, so he made recordings with Benny Carter, who was also one of the earlier alto players, would deal with him at some other time. Um, so he is doing a great job in Europe, he's getting more and more famous, and his stock is going up, worldwide, but America is one of those countries when now you see me, now you don't. And if we don't see you, we forget about you. So while he's gone, you got Chewberry and people like that, you know, they're they rising up and and, uh, and uh, Prez is, you know, is now uh, Lester Young and Prez, the president's saxophone. No, 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 that's Coleman Hawkins, but he's not here. So during that period, Leslie Young becomes Prez. Yeah. But in 1939, Hulk comes back home. And things start to change. And even Leslie Young said, I may be the second president of the tenor saxophone, but Coleman Hawkins is the first. Now, Hawk was playing a club called uh, Kelly Stables at that time with a small group. And this is at the time when you got big bands, but you know, Hawk is thinking ahead, man. He can see where things are headed. You know, the big band thing is about over, oh, this is 39, the 40s are about to start. He can feel the pulse. He, he feels something new coming. So he got a small group playing this small club over on 52nd Street called Kelly Stables. And the group he had at that time uh, is um, playing this one little song that Louis Armstrong had recorded in 1930. It's called uh, Body and Soul. Yeah, Body and Soul. And uh, in 1939, Hulk came out and recorded two choruses. I said it, two choruses. And what was unique about it is there is a four-bar piano intro with Coleman Hawkins and his orchestra. And then the full band comes in with Hawk leading the tune. And he plays the recognized melody for eight measures. That's it. 32 beats. That's it. You recognize the melody. And after that, you don't hear any more melody. You hear the harmony and the chord changes, but you hear him improvising in more of an arpeggio fashion with extended harmonies and alterations and passing chords and, and it was like, no, no one does that. You're supposed to play the melody when you play a battle. You only play, you didn't even play the whole melody. You only played eight bars. You can't do that. Why not? Yes, I did. Yes, I can. And that became his most important and most popular recording for his entire career. It broke all the rules. He broke all the rules. At the same time, set a system for playing the ballad that was the new rule.
as Miles Davis said, when I heard Hawk play a ballad, that's when I learned how to play a ballad. It's a fact. So this thing became great. Now he had actually recorded with uh, Biddy Goodman and he'd actually recorded with uh, a group called the uh, Blue Blowers from uh, around Kansas City, uh, Mount City Blue Blowers or something like that. And these were integrated groups. That's why they only recorded. So he was all right with the social engineering and pushing the envelope there, but he wasn't trying to take that thing out to the street and get shot at. So they did it like in the recording studio and everybody is at least safe in that environment. So he did do some software integrated groups and as time went on, he did even more and more when it became safer. But in the early years, most of the stuff he did that were with integrated groups were done only on recording. Now, he's popular again, he got this big ballad, life is going well. 40s, he does the big band, and right back again with the small combo stuff. That works for a while. Back and forth to Europe, he's back and forth to Europe, he loves Europe, he's back and forth. By the 50s, he finds himself at a new joint in New York in a new section of New York that's gonna become what I call jazz heaven, the village baby. Yeah. And who is running it? Hawk. And where is he playing? The famous village vanguard. That was his joint. He played there more than anybody else in the 50s. And he's doing these wonderful, wonderful recordings. His own recordings, matter of fact, featuring a young bebop trumpet player who would soon move to Europe and not come back until just before his death. That is the great Idris Suleiman, who is a trumpet player who started out, I think his name was Thomas Graham, his given name at birth. He was born right here in St. Pete, less than a mile from where I'm sitting right now. But he left here uh, after uh, becoming famous as a bebop uh, jazz musician in New York, went to Europe, uh, settled in Copenhagen, did not come back until very, very late, but one of Coleman Hawkins' most celebrated albums before Idris left the country was made in this country, and uh, you, can, you can find it, okay? It's easy to find. I think 1957 uh, this recording was made. So, um, Coleman Hawkins continued to go back and forth to Europe. He continued to hook up with Idris in Europe, but not in the States, because Idris did not come back until much, much later. Uh, the late 90s, he came back, and he died here in 2002. So, um, Coleman Hawkins was long gone by uh, 2002. Coleman, however, was not done in 1957. You see, not only did he make that great recording with Idris, he also did these collaborations. Duke Ellington meets Coleman Hawkins. 1962. Just great album, there's nothing you can say. In 1960, he had done the album 
we insist sweet. There was kind of a civil rights anthem that was done by Max Roach. So Coleman Hawkins also had the spirit of activism and the spirit of social upheaval and racial justice in his spirit as well. Remember, he was the first to integrate that Asbury Park neighborhood. So he had that attitude as well, don't forget that. And that was manifest in recordings he made in 1960. By the way, something I had forgotten to mention earlier, during his earlier period uh, in the 40s, perhaps the first bebop album ever made was made with him and Mike Roach and Dizzy Gillespie I think the year was 1944, and it's regarded as one of the very first um, bebop albums. So here's what we need to understand about Coleman Hawkins. He came up at the time that he would have been playing from the very beginning with the very earliest of this music with Mamie Smith and people like that and Fletcher Henderson. He played tenor sax during the swing era from when the tenor sax emerged as a major force, as an instrument. But he helped bring into being the Bach period. He collaborated with Theolonius Monk and with Max Roach and with Dizzy Gillespie and with Idris Suleiman and with all the great minds and players of that period in the 60s. He collaborated with the guys who were pushing the social agendas uh, forward, such as Max Roach, We Insist Sweet. He did collaborations with anybody, wasn't afraid of anybody. Duke Ellington did that collaboration. He even did a collaboration with Sonny Rollins, who at that time was raising himself up to be the tenor saxophone player. But you see, Sonny Rollins knew that he was just Hawk's stepson. That's all. Yeah, I go, oh, Sonny, Sonny, Sonny. But Hawk is going, boy, don't get too big for your britches. They did this thing, Sonny meets Hawk. Collaboration as equals, because Hawk could play the old style, the swing style, the bebop style, the modern style, whatever. He was a musician who absorbed it all. He did it all. Yes, he did. And he did it the right way. And he would make sure that it was documented, recorded. One of the things that Monk did, Monk Meets Coltrane, was a part of a session that Monk had done with Coleman Hawkins. I even have an old recording of a, a simple tune called Abide With Me that has Coleman Hawkins and John Coltrane playing on the same track together. So Coleman Hawkins wasn't afraid of anybody, man. He was their daddy and he knew it. And he didn't have any problem with it. He would look at St. Rollins and go, boy, don't get too big for your britches. I'm your daddy. He wouldn't get too scared of John Coltrane or the stuff Train could do and go, oh, my God, John Coltrane. Yeah, he would say, boy, you may be all this and all that, but you can never be my daddy. I'm your daddy, and don't you forget it. Coleman Hawkins is the father of the tenor sax. That's what I'm saying. And everybody who played the tenor sax since 1923, 
owed a debt to Coleman Hawkins, period. He continued to work. His last recording was made in 1967. And then the Hulk went to another great orchestra in the sky to continue his legacy of leading us to higher ground. This man is a major innovator and he influenced not just the tenor saxophone players, but everyone who was anyone that would play this music. And he collaborated and played with everybody from J.J. Johnson to Don Baez to Chu Berry to John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, Elonious Monk, Mike Roach, uh, Oscar Pettiford. I mean, we can go uh, Oscar Denard, the great piano player, another great uh, St. Petersburg native who died all too young, just great uh, jazz piano player from St. Pete who um, just We'll have to do more on him later. Uh, there's just so much that he did. He collaborated with everybody that wanted him on their date. He was a generous man. He was an innovator. He was a creator. And we just know him as Hawk. Mr. Coleman Randolph Coleman left the building in 1967. Thank you very much for listening.